Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So it's perhaps a little unusual for so many Bible readings to be in a UU service today. Um, but this is something that I've kind of had to do some wrestling with, and in this process, um, I found a little bit of wisdom that I would like to, to share with all of you. So first I wanna take some time and unpack the reading from the book of Deuteronomy that I just gave. So if we look at this passage, we see Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and reminds them of the land that God has promised. The thing is, this land is already inhabited by another people, a people the Israelites must violently displace. That is what is meant by a land, a large land flourishing with cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. In a literal sense, Moses is telling his people that God has ordained that they take this land and make it their own. But this morning, I want to invite us to look past this feature of the text. Not because it's unimportant, but instead I want to turn our attention to another feature and help us to focus on what wisdom we can gain from reading such texts in a non-literal way. So according to the scholarship of Bernard M. Levinson as presented in the commentary of the New Oxford Annotated Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, quote, directly addresses the problem of the historical difference between past and present, between tradition and the needs of the contemporary generation between revelation and interpretation, end quote. Understanding this text in such a way keeps it open for us to wrestle and struggle with. That is that it invites us to participate in a conversation of meaning making that stretches back through time, joining together the contemporary with the ancient. Understanding this text in such a way keeps it open for us to wrestle and struggle with. And Levison says that part of the feature that lets Deuteronomy be read in this way is that it, quote, does not permit itself to be read literally or passively. It challenges readers to actively confront the problem of relation between revelation 
and interpretation and breaks down the conventional boundaries between scripture and tradition. Like it or not, texts such as Deuteronomy and the rest of the Bible are part of our human heritage. They have explicitly and implicitly shaped our cultures in ways that we perhaps do not even fully understand. That is why learning to engage such texts and finding contemporary meaning in them can be a powerful and transformative act. In recognizing this, I have been inspired to find places in my own life where I am able to take these texts, to wrestle with them, and to find meaning that helps to sustain me in the work I do. <clears throat> so when I was being introduced, um, a little bit was shared about sort of the work that I've been doing with the San Francisco Night Ministry. And I want to make a little bit of a shift here and share a little bit of my personal experience with this work. I hope that in doing this, I'll be able to give you all some insight into what this textual wrestling has looked like for me, and perhaps provide an example of how, how this wrestling can be a powerful tool in helping us to develop new understandings. So since the start of this year, I've been working with the San Francisco Night Ministry. This work is part of my unit of clinical pastoral education, which is a requirement for everyone seeking fellowship as a Unitarian Universalist minister. In this role, I spend many late nights in San Francisco, either working as a crisis line counselor or walking the streets providing pastoral care to the people I encounter. The majority of the people that I end up interacting with, both in person and on the phone, are homeless or marginally housed. Many of them struggle with mental illness, and with that often comes a component of addiction. Others, through no fault of their own, have simply just found themselves in unfortunate circumstances. This work has required me to develop a special sensitivity to conditions that I have no lived or personal experience with. I've always had a roof over my head and food in the fridge, thankfully. I have always known, you know, what's going on in my life from day to day, despite the uncertainties that we all face. But overall, I've had this stability and the privilege that comes with that. Being in this role with the San Francisco Night Ministry has been emotionally taxing. I get little sleep and often find myself engaging in situations I feel that I can have little impact on. It can be frustrating to find yourself in a situation where all you can do is offer a listening ear especially when another person right in front of you or on the phone is in pain or deep sorrow or otherwise uncertain of how they will overcome the things before them. You want to find a way to make everything better for them, but that's not realistic. So you offer 
what you can and listen. At times, this experience has caused me to, to feel a sort of internal conflict, a feeling that I'm not doing enough, or somehow that I'm not strong enough emotionally to do this work. It's brought out many of my own fears and insecurities from my past life and lived experience, as well as a sense of disappointment when I feel that progress is not being made. I need to spend some time reflecting on these feelings and find ways to make this work seem more sustainable for me, find ways of engaging it that allowed me to draw on that sort of support that I needed. Upon reflecting on these feelings, though, I was reminded of a book that I read in seminary in one of my pastoral care classes. The book is titled Counseling the Culturally Diverse by authors Daryl Dwing Sue and David Sue. In this book, Sue and Sue name what they call one of the primary characteristics of white U.S. culture, of my culture. They say that this perspective fosters values and beliefs that are, quote, action or doing oriented. That is, one, we must master and control nature. Two, we must always do things about a situation. And three, we should take a pragmatic and utilitarian view of life. Out of this way of thinking, we get viewpoints such as the Protestant work ethic or the idea of the rugged individual. Such viewpoints can serve the function of motivating us to differentiate ourselves one from another and form strong individualistic tendencies. In small doses, I think that many of us can find some value in upholding this perspective. But when taken to the extreme, this way of engaging can leave us in a place where we think we need to do everything on our own. That somehow asking for support or help makes us weaker or insufficient. Reflecting on this understanding, I found that what Sue and Sue were saying about the characteristics of white U.S. culture resonated with my own experience at the night ministry. This revelation left me in a position that felt a bit like hitting a wall, a collision between the beliefs and values that I hold and the reality of my needs in this situation. I've been enculturated to do things on my own. And now I've found myself facing a task too big to take on alone. Intellectually, I recognized that I was going to have to ask for help. But emotionally, I still felt that I was supposed to be strong enough to go at it alone. I kept telling myself things like, but I've gone to seminary. I've trained for this situation. I should be able to handle it. 
But no matter how many times I repeated these things to myself, deep down I recognized that what I was affirming was not the truth. I could tell that I needed to find a way to reconcile this conflict, but it was not clear to me the form that this reconciliation would or could take. So, what does all this have to do with Deuteronomy? Well, I spend some time reading the Bible every once in a while, and the truth was that it was through reading this specific passage that I shared and meditating on it that I was able to find a way to resolve this conflict for myself. I realized that in a literal sense, like most of us I'm assuming, that I literally live in a house that I did not build, in a land that was taken from other people. These are part of the features and realities of my life. But as I said at the beginning, that I, I want to set aside this sort of literal meaning and find ways to engage this text that allow us to get beyond the surface and find that place where wisdom is bubbling up. In a metaphorical way, this passage helped me to realize that in my own life, I draw from many wells that I did not dig. That is, I am already intimately supported and sustained by the efforts of many people, both alive and dead. And that support is there for me, whether or not I even acknowledge it. It's part of the fabric of what it means to exist, to be in relationship with the rest of existence. With this metaphorical reading in mind, I want to circle back to that point I made earlier about texts such as Deuteronomy being part of our human heritage. This is an important point for me <clears throat> because it calls us to acknowledge the active role that such stories, despite the thousands of years that separate myself from the authorship of this story, it reminds us, though, of how these stories can still play an active role in our life, how they shape our society and ultimately ourselves. Just like our genetics and family of origin help to shape who we are, the stories we know and the way we interpret them are also part of our identity. I believe that the more awareness we can cultivate around how these stories play out in our lives, those subtle ways that the narrative lines up with our own life, that through doing this, we are able to gain a higher degree of agency over how we interpret these stories and ultimately how we choose to act on them. Doing this allows us an opportunity to reach across time and enter into a dialogue that has been slowly but steadily unfolding with each new generation.
joining our voices with those who have already spoken. For me, making this shift from a literal reading to a metaphorical reading helped foster an understanding of the ways that I was already receiving support and challenged the notion of the rugged individual that I had internalized from a young age. I do find it just a little bit funny, I'll admit, that it took entering into a conversation with an ancient text to come to this realization. Perhaps it had something to do with what Bernard Levinson said about Deuteronomy directly addressing the problems of difference between past and present. Or perhaps it was something else entirely. But whatever the case may be, I can say making this shift made it easier for me to seek out support from others. Somehow realizing all the many ways I was already being supported, recognizing the wells that I draw from that I did not dig, that enabled me to seek out the additional support I needed to challenge the assumption that I have to face things alone. I believe that learning to forge relationships like this in a way that deepens the well of resources available to us and allows us to draw support in new and meaningful ways, connecting us one to another across the whole of creation, allowing us to play our part in the continued writing of the human story. So my hope today in sharing this message and my experience with all of you is that you will be inspired to find those places in your life and draw more fully on the resources available to you to help to make meaning and forge relationships that help sustain and guide you. Challenging the notion that you need to overcome things by yourself. Life can be hard when we approach it alone, but things can become just a little bit more manageable if we join together. For as our other reading today reminds us, two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. May we be that cord of many strands, and may our strength be that of many people. May it be so. Amen, and blessed be. Amen.